are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. If you're a guest, again, welcome. You came on July 4th, a special welcome. You guys, that means you're a rock star, right? Uh, and obviously, you are folks that are not going to Tybee today, because if you are, you will be waiting for six hours. So the early service people are going to Tybee. You guys are not, clearly. Um, we're gonna be in Exodus 25, really through 31. We're gonna be all over the place a little bit. Uh, today is a little bit different than usual for us. It's gonna feel a little bit different, and I'll explain why. Um, when Peter Jackson kind of came out in the early 2000s with his epic Lord of the Rings trilogy, right, he filmed the entire thing in one, one year period, like a year and a half, uh, and then they released them every year because they wanted to make a bazillion dollars, right, and no, nobody wants to sit through an eight-hour movie except for someone like me who would clearly do that, but um, the, the idea was they film it all together because it's one story, but they can't just it's so big and grand that you had to break it up. That's a little bit like today's sermon. Not that it's great and grand or that there's epic, you know, special effects, but this is such a grand story that this is part one. And so next week you're going to have to come back for part two. Okay, that's the tease, okay? Um, because we're going to be looking at the Old Testament tabernacle. The Old Testament tabernacle. We live in a day and time where the church, the people of God, are, are, are really struggle with biblical literacy. We don't know the word of God. And yet Peter says that we're to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And part of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ is understanding the big story of God and what God is doing and how he has redeemed his people. This meta narrative of scripture. What has God been doing from the beginning until the end, till the culmination of all things? And the, the Old Testament tabernacle is a huge piece of that story. This, is, this is, was central to the worship of the one true God for hundreds and hundreds of years. And that tabernacle then became the Temple of Solomon, which has been destroyed, but then rebuilt under Haggai and those prophets. And then Herod builds it out even grander. And that was the same temple that Jesus would teach in daily and fight with the Pharisees. It's the same temple or tabernacle that the early church would meet on Solomon's portico and gather hundreds and thousands to hear the apostles teach. So it is part of our story. And so this is a big piece of what God is doing under the old covenant and it relates to us. And the whole point of the tabernacle, the whole point is this, that God wanted to dwell amongst his people. That, that God, knowing man couldn't come to him, they were kicked out of the garden. There's a separation between us and God. The wages of sin is death, right? So God, because he knew we couldn't get to him, what does he do? He dwells amongst his people. He takes up residence with them. And to do so, it had to be very specific and very precise on how that was going to happen. And that is what the tabernacle is all about. And so we're going to be covering chapter 25 through 31. We're going to be a little all over the place because this, if you read this section of scripture, and I encourage you to do so, you're going to be like, and there's tent poles and there's tents and there's goat hair and there's rings and there's gold. And you're going to be like, I don't get it. Understood. It's challenging because it's basically a blueprint. So what I'm going to hopefully do for you this morning, I'm going to walk you through the Old Testament tabernacle. I'm gonna walk you through the front gate all the way to the back, right? And kind of help you understand and kind of, it's, so it's a little bit more informational. You're gonna feel like you're in a little bit of a seminary class. You'll be okay. There's no tests at the end, okay? But I want you to learn this 
So you understand, because there's a reason why God does it this way. And we're gonna see a little bit of that next, this week and then next week even more so, okay? So God is very specific on how this tabernacle would look. He spends six days creating the universe. He spends 40 days telling Moses how to make a tent. Do the math. What's important here is how to make this tent that he will dwell in. So at the end of last week, we saw God enters into covenant with his people. He said, are you in or are you out? Final answer. And they said, final answer, we're in. We are going to commit to follow. We are gonna be cleansed by you. We are going to have communion with you, the one true God. And so then he calls Moses up at the end of 24, right? Moses went up on the mountain. The cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called out to Moses out of the midst of the cloud, Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered into the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was up there 40 days and 40 nights. The mediator of this new covenant was with God for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Who else who's a mediator of a covenant went into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights before he came out and revealed himself to people? That would be the Lord Jesus. That's right. There's significance there. So chapter 25, he's up there and God's gonna give him the instructions. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves. That's important. We'll come back to that later in the book. His heart moves, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive for them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple, scarlet yarns, fine twin linen, goat's hair, tan rams, skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, um, ox Onyx stones, stones for setting, for the ephod, for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, that I may, uh, shikan is the word, so they will build a tabernacle, a, a mishikan. The idea is God is going to dwell in their midst, and it's gonna look at a very specific, he says, make it exactly Underline that word you're thinking. Exactly as I, don't just say, hey, we just need a 3-2 with a garage, you know, and a carport. No, no, no. Make it exactly as I say. And here's what's beautiful about this. If God wanted to, he could have just like dropped a tent out, right? Boop. Like, move that bus. And everyone's like, whoa, look at the tent, you know, kind of thing, right? He could have done that. But what is he gonna do? He's gonna use the gifts of the people And he's gonna use the skills of the people to build a house for himself. How good is God? He's gonna limit himself in a way that he's gonna be dwelling in a place that man is generous and gives so that can happen and that they can, their skills work uh, of man. He's gonna gift people to to do things. And and it's gonna get to a point, you'll see at the end of this book, where they're bringing so much stuff because their heart is so moved because they're loving God at this point that that Moses is gonna be like, we don't have room for all y'all stuff anymore. Stop bringing stuff. We don't need that 64 Mustang. Give that to Bill. Give that to Bill, okay? <laughs> we don't need your stuff. We have enough. It's a beautiful picture of, of, of what God's still doing, right? He's still using broken people. And here's what's also significant about this. It comes after the golden calf where they break God's covenant and they break his law and yet God still uses them and, and they have a heart to follow and a heart to be generous. It's a, it's a great picture of grace, but he wants to dwell in their midst. It's gonna look something, I mean, this is an artist rendering, obviously, but this is what we're looking at. Two million people, and smack dab, right in the middle, is this tabernacle, right? Where glory of God, and the, and the cloud comes down, and people are in awe. And this is, this is an overview of what it looks like. And if you're like, that's not that impressive, you're right. 
It looks like your campsite out at Skidaway Island, right? I mean, it's not, it's not that grandiose. It's very basic. It's very simple, right? It's, it's not flashy. And there's a reason for that. Who else came that wasn't real flashy? That, that Isaiah says nothing about him would make you think he's anything special. It's just a tent inside a tent inside a tent, is what it is. Now, it's as interestingly enough, as man kind of gets involved and starts building things, this tabernacle turns into the Solomonic Temple, which is very grandiose. Solomon spends bazillion dollars building this thing, and then it gets destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, and then it gets rebuilt under Haggai and all these prophets, and then it turns into Herod's temple, which is even more grandiose. This is the model of the Herodian temple, the very temple that Jesus walked in, the very temple the early church met in those, in those porticos. Right? But at the beginning, it's simple. It's just that. And if, you look down, if, if you're looking down from the top, here's what it's broken into. There's three sections in this tabernacle. Three. How many sections? Three. I'm just making sure you're awake. Okay, good. Three. Awesome. There is the outer court. Say outer court. There is the holy place. And then there is the holy of holies. Okay, very good. You're awake with me. So, so the outer court, this is when every, everybody, every Israelite could go. You're your average Israelite, you can go into this place. And if you go in, there's gonna be Levites and priests, all right? Uh, in the early church, okay, uh, the Gentiles, when the, here, go, I'll go back to this slide here. See, th- this is Herod's temple, okay? That, that outside, that big space, that courtyard, that's called the court of the Gentiles. So you and I, if you're not of Jewish heritage, that's where you could go, and that's as far as you could go. You couldn't go any further. You try to go in that little front gate there, you're gonna get killed at, at worst. At best, you're gonna get stopped. No Gentiles in there. It is... Inside there is the court of Israel, right? But back to, let me go back to, to this. So, you, so the court of Israel is that place with the big square thing and the big round thing, right? That's where you could go. Now, if you're a high priest or a priest, you can go into that holy place. To be a priest, you had to be of the tribe of which tribe? Levi, good. And you had to be from the family of Aaron. So you have a big tribe of Levi, but inside Levi, you have a smaller family called Aaron's family. And if you were in Aaron's family, you could be a priest and you could go into the holy place. And then in the very little small room there, that holy of holies, only one guy could go in one time per year, the high priest on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. It's, it's very similar, by the way, to Mount Sinai. So Mount Sinai, you had God on the mountain. Only Moses could go to that holy spot. And then some of the leaders could come halfway up and everybody else had to stay at the bottom. It's a picture of that, okay? So those are your three places. It's not a big structure. If you read through the text, you're gonna see this measurement called a cubit. You're like, what's a cubit? I was in third grade. I had a, a, a ruler with 12 inches. I didn't have a cubit stick, right? A cubit is, is about 18 inches from the tip of your, your middle finger down to your elbow. That's their measurement, and so 100 cubits is its length, which is about 150 feet. Not quite, for, for me, baseball guy, home to second base, all right? Uh, and it's 75 feet, which is not even quite the first base. It's not big. It could almost fit in this room. Not a big place. You would, again, expect some grandiose, you know, some of your houses, most of your houses are bigger than this, okay? That, so it's not a huge building, right? That, that's the idea. Okay, so that, that's... That's what we're looking at. Let's start with the courtyard, okay? The courtyard, that outer space, not outer space there, but that outside tent, okay? The, the, the walls of this bad boy are seven and a half feet high, five cubits, okay? And so notice in the picture, there's no windows. So you cannot, if you're on the outside, 
seven and a half feet wall. Unless you're Clint, you can't see in, okay? Let's be, he could get on tiptoes. Fowler can't even reach the top, okay? So nobody can see what's going on inside from the outside. And you'll notice there is one door. It is, you know, different colored. It's a, there's, a, there's a curtain. There's different curtains in this thing. There's one door in and one door out. There's no emergency exits. You know, there's no co- you know, fire code in that day. Oh, we gotta be able to get out if something happens. No, one way in, one way out. That's significant, okay? Because later on, Jesus is gonna say, you wanna get to God, the presence of God? There's one way. There's one way in and that is it. That's why there's one gate. There's one door, right? And here's another significant factor of it. This gate is always facing to the east. Anytime they broke this dead, dead boy down and they, broke it up, and they were constantly breaking it down, picking it up, breaking it down, picking it up. Well, as they wandering through the wilderness, break down, pick up, break down, pick up. Every time they would set it up, they wouldn't just be like, oh, look, there's enough space there. We'll just set it up. No, they set it up with the gate always facing to the east. That's not east. That's probably south, right? That's east, all right? They'd always set the gate up to the east. Let's, let's see how good we're thinking. If, if the gate is facing to the east, if you wanna go towards the presence of God, which direction do you have to go? West. Some of you are like, I don't know. I got a one in four chance. Okay. <laughs> always going west. You wanna get closer to God, you're always going west. That doesn't mean move to California. Move to Texas, yes, not California. <laughs> okay. And there's a significance to that. Okay. A couple things. Number one, the pagans of the day worship the sun. Where does the sun rise? The east. And so Ezekiel 8 actually talks about it. It says, my people, the people of Israel, have turned their backs on my temple and they worship the sun to the east. But if you're gonna worship the one true God, what do you have to do? You have to turn your back on the gods of the world and you have to face him. That's one thing. The other thing is this, in the book of Genesis, it's often, not every time, but it's often going east is often, move, is often symbolic of moving away from God. So when Abraham and Lot separate, Lot goes to Sodom and Gomorrah. Guess where Sodom and Gomorrah are? To the east. In the Garden of Eden, when, the, when Adam and Eve are kicked out, there is a gate to the Garden of Eden, the presence of God, and the gate is on the east. You wanna get to God, you go into the west. He puts cherubim at the gate so that you can't get west into God's presence. I think it's significant too. Can't prove it. It's my hypothesis. When Jesus is born, there's magi who come from the where? East, and they move west. Is that significant? I don't know. I'm not gonna write a commentary about it, but I got, I'm 51% sure. <laughs> but there's a point. God is very meticulous on how this is to be laid out. And if you wanna come in towards God, you're coming in through the one gate. And once you come in through the one gate, the first thing you're gonna see is this big, massive altar, Right? It's the first thing you're gonna see once you come through that curtain. This big bronze altar. God says, you shall make the altar of acacia wood. Five cubits long, five cubits broad. It's big. Seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet. The altar shall be square. At height shall be three cubits. It's four and a half feet. And you shall make horns on its alt- on the corners and its horns shall be one piece with it. He gives them very specific. He's gonna make pots for it uh, and, and, and shells and there's gonna be ashes and there's all these specific details about this. The bronze altar is the first thing you see when you come in. 
Okay, it's made of acacia wood. It's huge. It's got these horns. And all sorts of different offerings are going to be laid on this thing. Every kind of offering you have. So there's going to be grain offerings, which are just, you know, you bring in the first of your produce in. And some of it's going to go on the altar. Some of it's going to go to Levites to provide for them. But you're also going to bring your sin offerings and your peace offerings. And your all, every kind of offering you bring to the tabernacle is going to be burnt on this altar. And it is constant. Constant sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. You want to you can read Leviticus one through six. It's thrilling. You can find out about the entrails and how they wash them and all sorts of things. It's all going on right there. So this thing is a bloody mess, and that's not British. That's it's a bloody mess. Okay, it's just constantly sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, blood on the horns, sacrifice after sacrifice, grain, sacrifice after sacrifice. Constantly things are being killed and put on there. If you've ever hunted and you killed your own deer and you had to, you know, go through that process, just imagine the sight, the smell. It's a mess. But here's the point. The first step to access through God is come through his gate. And the very first thing you have is there's got to be blood. It's got to be a sacrifice. You want to get to God? It's got to be atonement. It's got to be a sacrifice for sin. That is the dominant thing you see. And then once you get beyond that, you see that little, that little birdbath looking thing? Okay, that is called a basin of bronze or the bronze laver. So he says, the Lord said to Moses, you'll make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar and you shall put water in it, which Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet. And when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. That's pretty serious. They shall wash their hands and their feet so they may not die. You say it twice, it's really serious. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offering throughout the generations. And so you have this, we don't know what it looks like specifically. You have this bronze basin. What we do know is this, that it's built on the, on the, on the generosity of the ladies in the camp who donate their bronze mirrors. Mirrors that day didn't have glass, it was polished bronze. And so they make it, all these ladies who got all these things in Egypt, they donate these bronze mirrors and they fashion this labor and there's water for their hands and water for their feet. It's not so that they can get rid of germs. It's not because they're scared of COVID. It's, it's symbolic. Every time you make an offering, you go and wash. Every time you go into the tent, you, make, you wash. Every time. This thing, I'm sure it was, it was probably cloudy, nasty water. It's not about washing their hands, per se. It's symbolic of what? Of being cleansed. Before you enter God's presence, you got to be cleansed. And here, here I think it's, it is significant, I think, for us living this side of the cross. What is the first thing we do after someone comes to faith in Christ? We baptize them. Does that water wash away anything? It doesn't wash away anything, but it's a picture of what? I am cleansed. After atonement, there's a cleansing, Right? It's significant, right? That's the bronze basin. Okay, that's the outer courtyard. Any Israelite could be there. Let's talk about the holy place. Okay, this is where only now the priests could go. A lot smaller, right? You can see it's only 45 feet by 15 feet. So it's the size of your den, size of your garage. Not a big, big uh, room. Once you go through that, that curtain, that innate curtain that God gives specific design and how many rings and how many this and how many that, you go into that room and this is what you'll see. Not these three guys, but that's just an example, all right? There's three pieces of furniture in this room. 
You look to the left on the south side, you're gonna have this candlestick, this light. You look straight ahead, there's gonna be an altar of incense. You look to your right, there's gonna be a gold table with bread on it, all right? First thing, when you come in, now this room is dark. There's no natural light, there's no windows, there's no nothing in there. It's got like four levers. If you read how this thing's made, there's four layers of stuff. Everything from linen to goat's hair, even potentially porpoise hair, all sorts of things. So it's dark as night in there. The only light in the entire place, in the entire room, is this golden lampstand that they, were, they made from one piece of gold, a talent of gold that's 75 pounds worth of gold, and it was hammered, and it looked like a tree. It basically, it was a, it looks, for some of you, like, that oh, looks like a menorah. This is a, you know, a PDF little picture, right? It, does, it didn't look like a menorah. Remember, menorah is, is for Hanukkah. It looks, if you look at the description, it's supposed to look like a tree, like an almond tree. And these little, these little things is where the flowers would be or where you put oil. And so it was the priest's job every morning and every night to refill it with pure oil, to trim the wicks. This thing constantly burned. It was always lit. Always lit, every day, morning, night. They're filling it with oil. They're trimming the wicks every day. And it looked like a tree for a reason. We'll come back to that next week. Here's your teaser, all right? But, but the idea is there is light in the room because of this. And it is not a menorah. A menorah uh, came about from the feast of uh, Hanukkah. If you're familiar with uh, Hanukkah and the Festival of Lights, Hanukkah is not a biblical feast, although it is in the Bible. It's something they celebrated, but it wasn't one of the seven feasts God gave the people in the law. It was something that came about after 170 BC when Antiochus Epiphanes sacks Jerusalem and he goes into the temple, he kills a pig on the altar and, and desecrates the temple. And so this, this guy named Judas Maccabeus and his family, they go all red dawn wolverines and they... they attack Antiochus Epiphanes and they retake Jerusalem and they retake the temple mount but they only have enough oil for that lampstand for one day it takes eight days to purify oil and the, and the legend goes that, that God miraculously sustained that oil for eight days which is why Hanukkah is the festival of lights instead of one day you have eight crazy nights right remember the old Hanukkah song Adam Sandler there's eight days because it, <laughs> sorry <laughs> Adam Sandler has never made it in a sermon before, I can tell you. <laughs> but that's why they have eight candles on a menorah and eight days of Hanukkah, okay? It's related to this, but not the same thing. But that's the lampstand to your left, okay? Uh, and why is it almond trees? We don't know. There's some significance, maybe the fact that when Aaron and Moses are challenged by the people and God says, the person I've chosen to lead this group of people will have their staff, uh, the rod bud. And so Aaron's rod all of a sudden starts growing and has almonds produced on a dead stick? Maybe that. I don't know. Can't be sure. But almonds is what, what uh, this thing looked like, an almond tree. You look to the right, okay, you have this little table. This table of showbread or table of presents is what it says. It's over, overlaid with gold. It uh, has, has rings to carry it because they have to carry these things. There's no truck. There's no U-Haul. So anytime they move, they got a certain family that's in charge of the table and they walk with the table. Right, so there's always rings and, and, and posts and everything. And on it, there's 12 loaves of bread. And every Sabbath, a new 12 loaves would be replaced. And those old 12 loaves would go to the priests. And they would eat that. Okay, it was reserved for them. It wasn't like it was like magic bread or anything. But it was just reserved for the priests. There's one exception to that. There's a story in the book of Samuel. I don't know if you remember this. When David is on the run from Saul. 
right? Saul's trying to kill him. He goes to the, to the tabernacle. He lies to the priest and says, we're on a mission from Saul and we don't have any food. Do you have any food? And the priest says, well, we have the table, the bread from the table, this table. He's like, as long as you guys have been you know, set apart and you've been holy. And he says, yeah, we have. And they take the bread and they eat it and they run. And Jesus uses that story when the Pharisees are hammering him up. You're, you're picking grain on the Sabbath and you're doing this. He says, don't you remember David ate the bread of the presence? He's not a Levite. God cares, it's the intent of the, of the Sabbath is man was made for the Sabbath, not Sabbath for the man. The bread is, yeah, it's made for the priest, but if someone needs it, then we're gonna provide the need. But that's this bread that he's talking about, okay? So you got a light on your left, you got bread on your right, and in front of you, you have this little altar that's one cubit by one cubit, the altar of incense. Okay, you read about it in chapter 30, and the, the priest would go in every morning and every night, and he would light we burn incense. Again, out there behind us, it smells. It's death. And this, this incense was a sweet-smelling aroma, and it, it covered that, but it also provided smoke, which pictures Mount Sinai. Smoke often pictures the, uh, is a picture of the prayers of the, of the people of God ascending into heaven, ascending right before the throne, right? And so there's all this imagery. God was very specific of the type of incense that was supposed to be burnt on these coals, he gave a very precise uh, recipe. And he said, follow this recipe. It's a serious recipe. And, and what happens in Leviticus 10 is Aaron's sons, they learn the hard way. Don't be creative with the recipe because they offer a different recipe and fire comes out from the Holy of Holies and roasted Aaron's sons. They die immediately and they take them out. So God is serious about how this works. This is also the place, if you go all the way to the, to the Gospel of Luke, and there's this guy named Zechariah. He's an old dude, doesn't have any kids. And his, he's a Levite and he's from the tribe of Aaron and he gets chosen to light the incense. His, the lot cat is, falls on him. So the one time in his life he gets to go into this room and he lights and puts incense on it and all of a sudden, pow! Did you like that? I was like Heisman, right? <laughs> Gabriel stands right there. He's lighting this thing and all of a sudden, and again, you saw that room, it's small. He's lighting this and boom, Gabriel shows up and says, you're gonna have a boy. You're gonna name him John and he's gonna be the forerunner of the Messiah. And Zechariah says, how do I know that's gonna happen? He says, here's how. You're not gonna be a talk for 10 months, which is gonna be awesome for your wife and it's gonna stink for you. <laughs> and this is how it's gonna work. And so he leaves and comes out and everyone's like, hey, go all right. And he can't talk. And they're like, he's seen a vision. Sure enough, nine months later, old John the Baptist is born, and they ask him what's his name. He writes his name is John on a tablet, and his mouth opens. That's, that's happening at this thing right here. Okay, so this all ties to the story of God, see? That's what's going on. That's the altar of incense. On the Day of Atonement, that one day a year, they would take the blood from that offering that's back out there, and they would put it on those four little horns, right? Symbolic, they'd sprinkle it there, and we'll see in the Holy of Holies on the Ark of the Covenant. All right, so that's the courtyard. That's the holy place. Now we have the Holy of Holies, all right? This is the place one time a year, one guy could go in. And what separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place was this veil, and it was ornate, and it was thick, and it was just one piece. It wasn't like an opening. You can kind of open a curtain like that. It was one piece. You had to go around it, and it had cherubim on it, Woven in gold thread. It was just this fancy, fancy, ornate thing. Cherubim are a, a, a type of angel that are often seen in the throne of God. They protect the glory of God. They protect the presence of God. 
In fact, if Ezekiel 28 is a reference to the fall of Lucifer, which I believe it is, he was a cherubim, one who was in the presence of God, one who guarded the holiness of God. And so they uh, symbolically are guarding the very presence of God. And so if you would pull that curtain aside and enter into that holy place, this is what you would see. (laughs) No, this is what you would see. Sorry, I had to throw one Indiana Jones reference in. This is what you would see, the Ark of the Covenant, as it's called, this box that God says. And this is, this is the most important piece of the entire deal. In fact, this tabernacle is actually built around this. The very first thing, after God says, I want you to build me a house, build me a mishka, so that I may, shaka, that I will dwell, the first thing he tells them is this, you will make an ark of wood, of acacia wood. Two cubits is length, cubit and a half its breadth. It's not a huge box. It's overlaid in gold, right? That, this is the place which God's presence is, he's choosing to dwell on this Ark of the Covenant, right? That's what it is, right? And so it's, it's a very special box. There's actually gonna be one guy who makes it. We'll see, just one guy. God specially gifts him to make this. Right, it's overlaid with gold, it's very special, obviously. You cannot, no one can touch the ark. The only person that can touch the ark is the high priest once a year. You touch the ark, you die, which is where the movie's wrong, because right, they're all touching it and taking the lid off and, and, you know, and, and they're all fine. No, you touch the ark and you're not the high priest on the day of atonement and you die, right? Because this is where the presence of God is. This is where God is gonna speak to Moses, right? And there's all sorts of great, narratives in the Old Testament about the ark, some of my favorites uh, that are unique. There is a story when, when David is bringing the ark of the covenant up to Jerusalem. They don't have a tabernacle, temple yet, but they have a tabernacle and it, it starts to fall off the cart and a guy reaches out to kind of stop it and God kills him just like that because you don't just touch the ark of the covenant. And David freaks out and says, well, I can't bring the ark to Jerusalem. And so they put it in this guy's house, this guy Obed. They're like, hey, you gotta get, keep the ark. Imagine you're the guy. Hey, you put the ark of the covenant in your garage. You just killed a guy, but you know, you keep it there for a while, right? And so this guy has the ark in his house and God starts blessing his socks off for three months and everyone's like, hey, he's thriving. He's being blessed. And so then David finally brings it up to Jerusalem. Right? That's one great narrative. Another one is uh, when Saul is king and the people of Israel uh, are fighting the Philistines, they lose. They lose this great battle and they're like, what happened? I thought God was on our side. They're like, ah, let's go get the ark. And so they go get the ark and they put it out front. It's kind of a good luck charm for them, right? And they put, oh, we'll never lose now. We have the ark and they go and fight again and they get defeated again and the Philistines actually take the ark of the covenant and they victoriously take it and they put it in the, the temple of their God, Dagon. And overnight, the ark sits in that tab, the temple of Dagon and they come back in the morning and Dagon's statue is on its face before the ark. And they're like, ah, must have been a strong wind. So they do it again the next night. Next day, Dagon's arms and legs have been cut off and it's on its face again. And then there's an outbreak of tumors and sickness and all sorts of things amongst the Philistines and they start getting afflicted and they realize it's because of the ark. They actually send the ark back to the Israelites on carts with like golden tumors. They make golden tumors and they send the, they're like, get this thing out of here. Why? Because the presence of God was harsh against them, right? And so the ark was taken. We do not know where it is. Uh, in reality, by the time Jesus walks the earth, it's not in the tabernacle or the temple then. Um, 
Inside the ark were three things. Second copy of the Ten Commandments, a jar of manna, and a Aaron's rod that budded with almonds, right? And all, thing, all three things are pictures of God's covenant with his people. He's given him his law. He's given him his provision. He's given him his protection and his leadership. All three things, which Israel rejected. They rejected his law. They rejected his provision. They rejected his leadership. Interesting, isn't it? And that's why, because they broke his covenant and they rejected him, that's why on top of the ark is something called the mercy seat. God says about the mercy seat, I will meet you there. He's talking to Moses uh, from between the two cherubim that are on the top of the ark of testimony. I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for your people. This mercy seat, it's, it's from one piece of gold. It's got two cherubim that are facing inward with their heads down in worship. And this is basically the throne of God or his footstool in essence. Okay, it's, it's, he's not sitting on it, but this is where God's presence will dwell. And so what would happen on the day of atonement? Once a year, Aaron, or whoever the high priest would be, first thing they would do is they'd take a bull and they'd sacrifice the bull on that altar out there and they'd take the blood of that and they'd put it on the altar. That was for their own sin because they're a sinful priest, just like you have a sinful pastor. And then they have two goats after that. They take that blood and they put it on the altar and then they have two goats and they would cast lots and the lot would funnel one of the goats. It's like rolling dice, I guess. And so, okay, goat on the left. And so what would happen is they would take the goat on the left that the lot fall to and they would take that goat and they would kill that goat and they'd put it on that altar out front. And they would take some of the blood and they would go in and they'd put it on the four corners of the altar of incense and then he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle that blood on top of that mercy seat. And then he would go back out and there's that live goat. And he would put his hands on that live goat and say, all the sins of the people, we have been knuckleheads in 2020. We've rejected you, we've yelled at our spouse, we've, they would confess all their sins and then they would drive that goat out. And the picture was this, the sins of the people were on that goat who was killed and now they are gone and they're separate from us. And there would be atonement. And so when God's looking down from heaven on his footstool and he sees the law that has been rejected and the provision rejected and the protection that's been uh, rejected, he doesn't see their rejection anymore. He sees the blood. And there's no more sin. That's the day of atonement. That's the ark of the covenant and the mercy seat. They have been free like that goat that went free. That is the tabernacle in 20 minutes. 25 minutes. And if you want to deep dive on it, there's plenty of resources out there. But you say, what's the point? Great, now I know the tabernacle. Where's the tabernacle? We don't have a tabernacle anymore. Great. Here's the point. This is the way in which God chose to dwell with his people. Right? And it was limited. It was a very limited way because the people, if you're just me and you, we can't even go inside the tent. We're standing on the outside. What's going on inside? I can't see in. I'm a Gentile. And even if you are an average Joe Hebrew, all you can do is get to that altar and that's as far as you can go. And then even if you're special enough to be a priest on the right line in the right family, one of 12 tribes, and then not only that, then you can go a little bit further, but you still can't go that far unless you're the one dude who gets to go once per year. And you go in and you're not hanging out. You're going in and I'm out of here because it's special, right? It's limited, but that's not how God deals with us anymore. And this whole tabernacle and the whole point is to show you Christ. It's all, 
Again, what Jesus says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. These things speak of me. God has chosen to dwell amongst his people and it's not a tabernacle anymore. Who is it? It's in the person of Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt. You know what that word dwelt is? He tabernacled with his people. And we have seen his glory. The glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And how do you get to this one who dwelt among us? You gotta come through the one entrance. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. What does Jesus himself say about himself? I am the door. I am the gate. You wanna come? You want access to God? Great. There is one door. That's me. You enter through me, you will be saved, and you can go in and out, and you can have pasture and fellowship. I am the door. And then once you come through that door, that tabernacle, what do you see? The altar. What does Jesus say? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. The sacrifice of himself sitting on that altar. He is a better altar. He is a better offering than blood of bulls and goats which cannot take away sin. What's the next thing you see once you get past that altar? The laver which pictures washing. What does Jesus do? He loves his church. He gave himself up for her that he might what? Sanctify her and cleanse her. What? With washing of water. He is a better laver. He is a better door. He is a better offering. And then once you go into that holy place, you look right to the left and you see what? Light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever walks and follows me will not walk in darkness. You turn around, you do a 180. What's on your other side? You see bread. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Then you turn, you have this altar which pictures the intercession of, of the people of God before the presence of God. What, is, what does Hebrews say about Jesus? He's better than Aaron and Eli and Samuel. Why? Because they all died. And he says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him since he always lives. To do what? Make intercession for his people. And then you go through the veil. How do you get through the veil? You're not from, you're not from Aaron. You're not from one of these people because you have a high priest and you have blood of Jesus by the new and living way. He opened through the curtain. What curtain? This curtain I just showed you. He says, this is not just for them. This is why when Jesus is crucified, that veil that's super thick that even Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime on steroids couldn't tear through, it's torn through from top to bottom. It's 15 feet tall. Even Clint can't reach that. How does that happen? Because God ripped it open and he threw it open. And he says, this is my throne. Come on in. Why? Through the blood of Christ. Sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Our bodies washed. Since we have a great high priest. It's not Aaron. It's not Moses. It's not Samuel. It's not Eli. It's not Jeremiah. It's not Ezra. None of them. Christ, the Son of God, then we hold fast our confession, for we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Those guys had to offer a bull just so they could come in and offer your sacrifice. Jesus doesn't have to offer a sacrifice for his own self. He offers himself as the one sacrifice forever. That's why there's no more altar. That's why there's no more uh, tabernacle. The offering has been paid so we draw near to the what? Throne of grace, the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God. Now you find mercy and grace to help in time of need. It all points to Christ, his life, 
his death, his work, his ministry, everything. That's the point. And again, this is not one of those sermons that's like, okay, now go, do this, do that, do this, do this. No, this, this sermon is this. You want life? It's in Christ. You want to be sustained? Go to the bread of life. You want to know God's will for your life? Walk in the light of life. You want to be cleansed from your sin? Go to the one, the Lamb of God, who took away the sin of the world. You want hope? You want security? You want provision? Go to the one that this tabernacle builds. You want Eden restored, which is the point, teaser for next week, the presence of God, paradise, this tabernacle, the one that points to Christ, it points to that. That's the point. And it's, it's what we are. It's who we are, right? And we need to know it. This is how God, in a limited way, let his people get close to him. And now, think about how much better. You don't have to go through all the rigmarole Wash my hands, wash my hands, make sure this, fearful, fearful. No, you come to the throne of grace. The tabernacle teaches us that God is holy and righteous, but that he is merciful. And he welcomes his people into the holy place. And so I would encourage you, hey, I don't care where you've been this week. I don't care what you've done this week. If you are a child of God, you have access to God through Jesus Christ. And no longer do you need to go to a place at Shiloh or Jerusalem because now the dwelling place of God is in us, his spirit. You want, you talk about simplicity, the tabernacle of God, all five foot, five and a half of them. And it's the same for you. The tabernacle of God, where God chooses to dwell because of Christ and his sacrifice and what he has accomplished. Part two, next week. Let me pray. And just, again, opportunity to thank God for dwelling amongst his people. That, the, that God became a man and dwelt among us. The God of the universe. Let's not lose that marvelous truth today. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you have revealed yourself in your word, that you have pointed to the work of Christ constantly that, that it is about his name. Let us marvel at how you, 1,500 years before Christ would even be born, how you, only you, a sovereign God, an omniscient God, could do something so marvelous, to point so clearly to Christ. May we walk in his light, be sustained by the bread of life. May we uh, constantly intercede and, and approach your throne with the prayers of the saints, being washed by the water of the word and trusting in the Lamb of God who took away our sins. Into Christ's name I pray, amen. You guys stand as we sing.